It really was unprecedented. Uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was undermined, sidelined, and maligned in a way that has never happened before. It's been just over a year since the WHO declared the pandemic a public health emergency of international concern. If you cast your mind back to then, the news was full of reassurances about how prepared the UK was for a pandemic. If you looked around at those official measures of preparedness, the USA as well was all set to cope. Now, a year later, with the benefit of hindsight, that confidence seems wildly overstated. But why was that? What's the gap between that theoretical readiness and reality? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I'm talking to Tom Frieden, former Director of the US Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, under President Obama, and who has a long history of public health leadership. We talk about the gap between the apparatus to do something and the political will to use it, why data have been lacking, and the interaction between infectious and non-infectious diseases. Over to Tom Frieden. I'm Tom Frieden. I'm a president and chief executive of Resolve to Save Lives, which is an initiative of the Global Health Organization Vital Strategies. I previously was director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and health commissioner for New York City, and before that worked on tuberculosis control in the U.S. and globally. So you've got um, a great deal of experience in public health, and that's part of the reason we wanted to talk to you. Is um, You have written uh, earlier on in the pandemic about the potential for deaths in the U.S. to reach one million, which seems almost inconceivable but obviously um, in your role at the CDC you were thinking about you know, global pandemics a lot. Could you contextualize that 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 number one million and, and do you still think that that's the case? Well what I remember is the first time I met with President Obama it was in the Roosevelt room at the White House and it was just at the beginning of the H1N1 global pandemic when it wasn't yet very clear uh, whether it would be uh, severely fatal illness. And uh, President Obama turned to me and he said, Doctor, this isn't going to kill a million Americans, is it? And I said with considerably more uh, confidence than I felt, no, Mr. President, it won't. And as soon as I got out of the White House, I desperately called my staff and I said, did I give the right answer? And they said, yes, you did. Uh, but if I were forced to answer that question now, uh, it's quite a bit harder to answer. And we projected this back in uh, March, actually. We estimated what might happen. And unfortunately, although COVID is not the worst case scenario, it's a really bad scenario and a very challenging pandemic to deal with. And it is not impossible that deaths could reach as high as a million in the United States, but only if we let it. What we've seen is really a response that wasn't organized, wasn't based on science, and didn't communicate openly, 
honestly, forthrightly with the American public in the prior administration. So I'm enormously encouraged by the start of the Biden administration, where it's very clear there's organization, there's a plan, there's clear communication, and science will uh, rule again. Mm. And it's on that that response, I suppose, that that I want to talk to you a bit more about. In August 2019, you wrote in the BMJ in BMJ Global Health about um, preparedness for pandemics and um, a global survey of how how well um, people were set up to deal with this. Now, in that, the USA came out pretty well, and at the beginning of this in the UK, we heard that um, you know. The UK was rated pretty well in terms of uh, our response. And yet here we are sitting with potentially a million deaths with the, the highest per capita death rate uh, in the world in the UK. So what what went wrong? What's the gap between what we expected and, and what really happened? On the one hand, strong public health systems have been important in the COVID response and have been associated with better testing rates, better treatment rates, more organized responses. On the other hand, bad governance can trump good public health in any country. And we've seen that in countries around the world where uh, even a well-prepared public health system uh, is undermined by uh, disregard for science or sidelining or uh, political considerations. On the other hand, we've seen countries which have moderately strong public health programs, but excellent governance do extremely well. For example, uh, some of the countries of Africa. But I don't Mm. think any country uh, should be complacent here. The uh, virus that causes COVID is enormously difficult to fight. It's a challenging enemy, and I don't think any country should uh, rest on their laurels. Countries that are islands have important advantages. But um, other than that, Countries that have both a strong public health system and good governance, and Singapore, uh, South Korea, Germany uh, come to mind, uh, do much, much better. They have Mm. five or tenfold fewer deaths than other countries on a per capita basis. And when you were looking at that, when you wrote that editorial, was governance part of, you know, that rating system? Is that something that the kind of public health community um, took into account? I think we've been too focused on assessing public health capacities, not focused enough on fixing the gaps that are there. And that's something that needs to happen because there are uh, literally more than 10,000 documented life-threatening gaps in uh, public health capacity in the 100 plus countries that have already done a systematic evaluation. But the issue of politics being able to overrule public health, I don't think is one that uh, many people anticipated would be as severe as it has been. Of course, we know that public health decisions are political decisions, whether that's how much funding to give or whether to take certain actions, whether that's um, implementing uh, public health measures for infectious diseases, uh, such as mandatory vaccination programs or public health measures for some of the leading killers of today, such as uh, tobacco taxes. These are political decisions that have major public health consequences. What is quite extraordinary is the degree to which the response to the COVID pandemic has been politicized in many countries. And unfortunately for humans, 
the virus outnumbers us. And if they divide us, they can keep conquering us. The more we work together, the fewer people will die and the more we can get our jobs and economy back. Mm. I mean, talk about that politicization. That must have been particularly painful for you to watch um, as the, the CDC, the body that you that you led, was sidelined. We saw that uh, you know data was rooted um, around the usual reporting processes during this and, and the sort of attempts at, um, at appointing sort of political people into into making decisions. And that must have been tough to see from, from the outside. It really was unprecedented. Uh, the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was undermined, sidelined, and maligned in a way that has never happened before. Materials were put on the CDC website that weren't written at CDC. Uh, I would compare that to someone writing graffiti on a national monument except as someone pointed out to me when I made that analogy, everyone knows it's graffiti in that case. Uh, In this case, it it really is an undermining of CDC's authority. And I think it'll take some time uh, for the trust in CDC to be regained. On the other hand, the 20,000 professionals at CDC continue to do really important work through the pandemic. And Americans, by and large, went to the CDC website for information. They had more than 2 billion hits on their website. So uh, people were voting with their clicks and uh, searching the information. But because CDC wasn't able to speak directly to the American people from the podium, a lot of things got misunderstood, misinterpreted. CDC wasn't able to say when it was changing guidance and why and whether that was a valid reason. They weren't able to answer very important questions about things that had gone wrong. So there's, there's a lot of catch up to be done now. But at the same time, I'm optimistic that um, we're on a much better route to progress. Mm. Is that a role that the CDC, you know, a planned role for the CDC under a pandemic in the US is to, to, to step up and, um, and be almost the face of, of part of this? Uh, the CDC is central to protecting America and also to collaborating with countries around the world to ensure a safer, healthier environment and community. But it can only do that if um, it's supported. And when we've looked at Resolve to Save Lives, my organization, we've looked around the world, the countries that do best are those that um, not only uh, um, follow public health guidance, but fully support public health entities. Um, I mean, echoing what you've just said there, uh, there were the comments from Dr. Fauci recently about the way in which uh, his ability to communicate honestly with the American public was um, tested, shall we say, with uh, because of his relationship with the president. And I, and I just wondered if you had thoughts on, you know, how that independence should work? How, how independent should an agency like the CDC be from the context in which it's, it's sitting? Well, when it comes to technical matters, there should be no censorship. Uh, the uh, scientific experts should be able to speak directly to the public without any interference. When it comes to policy matters, it is absolutely the purview of the government to make uh, decisions and uh, set policy. Take the example of mask wearing. The Centers for Disease Control 
could say there is now sound evidence that widespread use of masks will reduce the spread of COVID and save lives and help us get our economy back. Uh, however, at the very press conference at which they announced a recommendation that people wear masks, President Trump said, I'm not going to wear a mask. Now, if President Trump had said, I don't want CDC issuing a recommendation that people wear masks, that would have been within his authority. Um, I wouldn't agree with it. It would have been a terrible mistake. But you could let CDC say, this is what masks do. And then it's a policy decision whether we're going to mandate them or recommend them everywhere. Um, but to have the complete dysfunctionality of a government that's recommending them and at the very same press conference undermining that recommendation was really mind boggling. It's not a question of just that things were getting politicized that shouldn't have been politicized, that that was certainly happening. It was also the extraordinary lack of coherent organization of the prior administration, such that when the transition occurred, there were concerns that the baton would not be passed smoothly. But when the new administration got in, it appeared that for many aspects of the response, there wasn't a baton to pass. There hadn't been an overall plan. There hadn't been a vaccination plan. There wasn't even plain information about when vaccines were coming. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was extraordinary to see. Um, I just wondered about uh, the importance um, of information and the CDC needed independence in not only sharing information, but in sort of collecting it and um, the ability to to do the work that the, the organisation needed to do out with interference at, at every level. The plain fact is that uh, public health in the U.S. has been underinvested in for decades. And one of the areas that's really behind is information systems. What you have are a wide variety of information systems, a few of, work, a few of which work well, many of which don't work well. You also have a very um, scattered system of laboratories and of healthcare providers. So not only does public health not have one system with one catcher's mitt, shall we say, for information coming in, but the information coming in is coming in from a very wide variety of systems uh, that may not talk well with each other, that don't use uh, standard ways to transmit that information. And so from the outside, you'd think, well, it should be easy to get uh, this piece of information or that piece of information, but it's extraordinarily complicated, not just because public health ha doesn't have modern informatics systems, but because it's having to manage a healthcare system that's enormously decentralized and has a very heterogeneous approach to information systems, laboratories that similarly are very different in different places. And on top of all of that, the US has a federalist system. So the Centers for Disease Control provides guidance and recommendations, 
but the actual data collection is done at the state and local level. And there tend to be pretty significant disconnects between the CDC and states, and also in most states between states and local areas. And I suppose that's a microcosm of what happens in the whole world if we're trying to think about global surveillance, which is obviously important when uh, viruses don't um, respect borders. Is there, is there an answer to that? Is that work that that is ongoing? Was that something that you were looking at when... Um... Surveillance is fundamental to public health. It's the lifeblood of public health. The World Health Organization has just released a score package assessing the quality of surveillance systems in every country. And fundamentally, the, the score of the world is needs improvement. There's enormous improvement needed in information systems in most countries. Um, and this is part of what we have to fix in this COVID and post-COVID world, that we have information that is truly life and death information in as close to real time as possible and as publicly available as possible without, of course, violating any patient confidentiality. But in terms of trends, numbers, risks, I think it's all of our right to know that, just as we need to know what pollution is like in our community or what the weather is like or what the economic indicators are. Public health is behind in this. And uh, COVID-19 has to be a wake-up call for the world. It has to tell us that um, this is the time to make a huge step forward in our ability to understand health risks, to track and monitor, to find problems when and where they first emerge, to respond rapidly so that if they can possibly be stopped, they are stopped, and to prevent them wherever and whenever possible. Mm. Now, that's obviously important um, at the moment. Uh, we're seeing the rise of new variations. We've had one in the UK, which is more transmissible, seems to, to have a higher mortality rate. Um, there's a variant out of South Africa, and Moderna have just said that it looks like they're... Um, vaccine is perhaps less effective against it, still effective, but less effective than uh, it was against those previous strains. So that kind of um, surveillance to, to prevent or, or respond when, you know, vaccine escape happens, we kind of need to get that in place now. Um, is it too late for that? Well, it's never too late to do better. The Nobel Prize winning biologist Josh Letterberg used to say, the microbes outnumber us. Uh, it's their numbers against our intelligence. And what we need to do is have a system for tracking and early warning. And influenza provides an interesting model for this. The tracking of global influenza is uh, really a global collaboration that is uh, pretty effective. It helps countries anticipate what will happen next in their country. COVID is new, and we're learning more about it literally every day. Um, whether we're recognizing more genetic changes because we can check for them more, or whether it's changing faster, I truly don't know. But in any case, what we've seen is a shot across the bow from the virus to humanity 
saying, watch out, we outnumber you, and we're figuring out ways to get around your defenses. So it's concerning that we've already seen variants that appear to be more infectious, and by one analysis, possibly even uh, cause a higher case fatality rate, and some variants that clearly can evade some of our natural antibodies. So far, we haven't seen any variants that can completely escape the mRNA vaccines or our natural immunity, but that doesn't mean that won't happen. And one of the really important uh, directions that we need to follow is not thinking that vaccination is going to solve all of our problems. Vaccination is by far the single most important thing that we can do to confront COVID. But to protect the effectiveness of vaccines, we have to tamp down the spread of the virus or else the risk is there that variants will emerge that can evade the vaccine-induced immunity or naturally-induced immunity. And then we'll be in a situation of having to catch up again with new vaccines and play this challenging game with the virus on which the lives of so many people de depend. But the broader issue of surveillance and genomic surveillance demonstrates one of the areas where we need to improve in public health. By 2016, uh, there was a European consortium that was able to do real-time uh, genomic sequencing of the Ebola virus in Guinea and other areas of West Africa. And it was quite helpful in figuring out where strains were spreading, whether uh, a new case was part of an existing cluster or a new cluster. And that kind of integration of the laboratory work of sequencing with the shoe leather work of figuring out how the disease is spreading is really important. It's not just about how many virus isolates can you sequence. It's also how good is your epidemiologic understanding of spread so that you can connect the RNA mm. or in another viral case, DNA sequence with the patterns of disease and the patterns of the spread of infection. I mean, it's incredible to, to think that we could get to a point where we could use that kind of surveillance to really track, you know, almost individual spread of uh, uh, of the, the virus. Um, you, you mentioned vaccines and them not being a, a panacea. And I suppose um, one thing that people are worried about is vaccine take up and the fact that um, some countries are, are, you know, when the public is surveyed, they uh, they suggest that perhaps levels of vaccination might be quite low. Um, I wonder, you know, that has been incredibly important in, in TB. Uh, um, and what you think about, or do you worry about um, vaccination rates in, in countries? And I wonder if you have any thoughts about mandatory vaccination. It's striking the extent to which vaccine confidence varies by country and within the United States by demographic group. The way to succeed with a vaccination program is to have a micro plan and a way of figuring out how you're going to reach out to each community, who are the trusted messengers, what are the effective 
messages? And uh, how can you rapidly counteract myths and misinformation that tend to spread like wildfire? Mark Twain wrote that um, a, a rumor can spread halfway around the world before truth even puts on its boots. Mm. And we see that kind of dynamic with vaccination. We can anticipate, for example, that there will be some people who, after getting a vaccine, will have a serious illness, which they would have had if they hadn't gotten the vaccine also, but that that may result in uh, a rumor or a concern or a reluctance of people to get vaccinated. One thing that is encouraging is that uh, the mRNA vaccines are so remarkably effective. I don't think uh, many people, if anyone, anticipated that they would work this well and be this safe. Uh, they really are a standout technology that has come just in time to potentially save millions of lives around the world and potentially also be used for other diseases. Um, and so I, I think there's some concern because people don't understand what an mRNA vaccine is and they wonder if it might have some other problems. But the high level of effectiveness, the fact that 20 million people have been vaccinated without uh, a serious adverse event been being definitively associated with the vaccine, though we wouldn't be surprised if there were a one in a million uh, serious adverse event, I think will lead to more vaccine confidence. You can think of vaccine receptiveness in three categories. One group of people who basically want to get vaccinated, a second group sometimes called the movable middle, and then kind of very entrenched people who don't want to get vaccinated. There's not a lot you can do with that last group. Just hope they come along with time. But for the movable middle, um, making vaccination easy, making it the default value, reducing barriers of time and logistics and other things are all extremely important. And then for the communities that have some suspicion of either vaccination or the healthcare system or both, it'll be very important to do proactive outreach. In the United States, we're seeing by preliminary data, much lower uptake rates in black Americans and in uh, Latino and Latina Americans. And that means we need to do better protecting the people who are at higher risk. Mm. I mean, we see, as you say, lower um, rates of, of uptake of, of vaccination, but also higher risk there. Um, and I suppose that leads me to uh, ask you about um, the work which you do at Resolve to, to save lives. Um, there you look at um, epidemics, but you also look at um, cardiovascular disease. And I suppose one th clear thing that's come out of COVID is the way in which things like um, ethnicity as a, a proxy for you know, marginalization or deprivation, um, pre-existing conditions like diabetes or indeed cardiovascular disease um, really affect the, someone's individual susceptibility um, and outcomes uh, from, from the pandemic. Um, and I just wondered, uh, traditionally, you know, we think about pandemic responses as being all about a communicable disease world and and not really about that that um uh the other one so is it time to sort of rethink that a little bit 
I do think we have a lot of false dichotomies and uh, health is a broad field. People who have uncontrolled diabetes, who have heart disease or lung disease from smoking are at much higher risk from many infectious diseases, including from COVID. At Resolve to Save Lives, we have two broad areas of work. The first is partnering with countries to improve readiness and ability to respond to health threats. And the second is cardiovascular health promotion. Heart disease is the world's leading killer, nearly 20 million deaths a year. Most of those deaths are in low and middle income countries, and most of those deaths are preventable with low cost interventions that are available today. And uh, a lot of that does depend on political decisions. Taxation, for example, of tobacco, of sugary drinks, of alcohol, of unhealthy foods can make an enormous positive health impact and also generate revenue for the government, which can be used to vaccinate children or educate children or do other things that have very important societal benefits. Uh, in our cardiovascular health work, we focus on three broad areas. The first is the elimination of artificial trans fat from the world, something that over the course of 25 years would save about 17 million lives. The second is reduction of sodium consumption. And uh, excess salt kills approximately 3 million people a year around the world. Salt reduction is challenging because we like salt, but government policy makes a really big difference. Governments can stop buying food that isn't healthy. They can stop subsidizing unhealthy food. They can tax unhealthy food. They can promote healthier spices. Um, there are lots of things that can be done. Uh, places like Chile have implemented front-of-pack warnings that have resulted in very rapid changes in the food landscape and very rapid improvements in the food choices that people make. Our third area is the treatment of hypertension, high blood pressure. High blood pressure kills about 10 million people a year. That's, all, that's more than all infectious diseases combined. Now, the treatment of high blood pressure is inexpensive and uh, needn't cost more than 5 or $10 a year. And yet, globally, only one out of seven patients has their blood pressure controlled. So we see a real gap in effective primary healthcare systems in the United States and also around the world. You can almost count on one hand the low and middle income countries that have strong primary healthcare systems. And even countries that have pretty good systems sometimes don't focus on the most important problems. We're focusing on hypertension for a very simple reason. It's the world's leading killer. And yet we do so poorly at controlling it. And because of that, we have higher healthcare costs. We have more dialysis. We have people disabled or uh, who've died from preventable strokes and heart attacks. Um, what I find often, and this gets back to the issue of politics and public health decisions, is that healthcare is structured for many things. It's structured to address people's felt needs. It's structured to support institutions and employments. It's structured as a benefit 
but it's all too infrequently structured to deliver the most health benefit possible. And if you start with that very simple question, how can you improve health the most with healthcare? One of the top things you have to do, and in many countries, the top thing you have to do is to better treat high blood pressure. So if we go back to that editorial that we talked about almost at the beginning of this, talking about how prepared the world is uh, for a pandemic. So given all of the stuff that we've talked about, the, the holistic nature of public health, the fact that you can't separate it out from cardiovascular disease, from political currents in countries, I just wonder what you think about what it really means to be prepared for a, for a pandemic. COVID-19 has to be a wake-up call for the world. We have to recognize that we are underprepared for threats. And there are certain things that really must happen. Every country needs to look at their own system and think, how can the public health capacities be better? And how can the governance be better? We need the World Health Organization to be even stronger as the anchor and pivot point for our global health work. And we need to think about our global health architecture because we need substantial investments in many countries, especially in lower and middle income countries in Africa and elsewhere. And that's going to cost billions of dollars a year. Each country needs to step up, but for the lower income countries, the world also needs to step forward in partnership. We also need to think about resilience, resilience of our healthcare systems, resilience of individuals, and resilience of our political system to be able to deal with disruptive health events so that we can minimize disruption, minimize loss of life, and minimize the dislocation of our social, educational, and economic activities that also have major potential harms to health. And, uh, do you have thoughts on how? Um... I, I think we need to do a few things. We need to put in much stronger accountability for country progress, improving public health in ways that are important for their countries, their neighboring countries, and the world. We need to further strengthen WHO and increase its technical capacity and independence. We need to increase funding for readiness in lower and middle income countries. An estimate has been five to $10 billion a year for at least a decade. Um, and we need to think about how we organize our global health efforts so that we recognize uh, the leadership of many countries in the global south and we build human resource capacity at the country and global levels while holding all of ourselves accountable for steady progress so that something this terrible um, doesn't happen again if there's any way it can be prevented. Yeah. Well, uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big ask, but um, yeah, as you say, a big wake-up call. Um, Dr. Frieden, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you. It's been delightful to discuss this with you. And um, we really do have at least one thing 
uh, to recognize that if anyone ever doubted that the world is inextricably interconnected, COVID should have put that doubt to rest forever. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we also should recognize that our fates are bound up with one another. And the more we work together, the better off we'll all be. You've been listening to Tom Frieden talk about our response to the pandemic. That's it for this interview, but we'll be back later in the week with some more insight from the front lines of care. We'll also be interviewing Jeremy Hunt, former UK Health Minister and current head of Westminster's Health Select Committee. We'll talk about oversight in the pandemic and the chances of a public inquiry into the government's handling of the crisis later in the year. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.